Hi and welcome to the Mount Hamilton Baptist Church podcast. We hope you enjoy listening to this message. For more information, go to mhbc.ca. And so today as we look at it, it's from Isaiah. We're going to I'm going to do the classic journalistic strategy to get us started. Who, what, when, where, why? Only not in that order. So you're going to see it on the screen here. First of all, the who. So who is saying this? As I've already said, it's a man named Isaiah, and he is a prophet. And now, last fall, we talked about different types of gifts that we have, and we talked about prophets as people who speak truth and who um, have insight from God. When we're talking about a prophet here, we're talking about a season in the Bible where we see in a particular way that God would raise people up that would have this very clear message from God. God would literally give them these words to say, these messages to deliver. And we have a lot of records of those messages here in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and Isaiah is one of them. He prophesied to, um, it says Israel there, that's a typo. He prophesied to Judah, the southern kingdom. So any one of you who are quick to pick that up. Uh, So sometimes I type quicker than I mean to. So he prophesied to Judah. Now that might be confusing because Judah is part of what we collectively call the nation of Israel. God had set aside a group of people that we know as Israel. Um, But by this point in scripture, we read that the collective nation of Israel had split in two. The northern kingdom still called itself Israel and the southern kingdom still called called itself Judah. So sometimes that's confusing. We use Israel kind of interchangeably. But he's in the southern kingdom. um, And the southern kingdom is where the holy city of Jerusalem is. It's where the temple is. That's significant. And much has been made of when this story took place. Because although it doesn't say a specific year, it gives a really interesting marker of time. It says that he had the vision in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, he's a real historical figure. We figure he died somewhere between 748 and 734 BC. So while this doesn't give us like an exact year, what it does give us is a sense of like the season that Isaiah would have been prophesying. You know what I mean? Uzziah had been king for 52 years. That's a long time, right? So, and not only that, while he was king, the nation had had peace and prosperity. It had been a really good 52 years. And sometimes, as we know, when there was a change of leadership, remember this was a ruling monarchy here, not like the monarchy we have, right? They were the ones ruling the country. Um, There's going to be change when there's a new king. And so when we read it's the year King Uzziah died, what we can know is that this is a year with a lot of transition. Probably a year when a lot of people are anxious about the future, right? What's going to happen now? Uzziah's died. What's the next king going to be like? And in fact, quite sadly, uh, we now know that this was a bit of a turning point in Judah's history, that after this, things really do continue to go downhill. And so they were probably warranted in wondering, is it going to stay as good? It didn't. And the reason that Isaiah is prophesying is that the people had been turning from God, uh, maybe in lots of little ways at first, but they're not fully honoring all that God wanted them to be. And a lot of people are pretty consciously forgetting how God wanted them to live. And that brings us to the what, where we're going to spend a bit more time. Let's talk about this vision 
It's quite an image, isn't it? If you're listening or if you remember it, you know it's quite a majestic image. And it starts, if you want to follow along, if you're looking at Isaiah 6, it starts by saying, he says in verse chapter 6, verse 1, page 557 of your Bible, look for the fat six in the second column. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Well, right off, we have an incredible statement. Isaiah is saying, I saw the Lord. That is a big deal. We, we truly believe that to see the Lord, it said here, you, you can't see the Lord. The Lord is so, so great, so powerful that we cannot fully see him with our eyes. And so somehow God has clothed himself in a way that Isaiah can actually see the Lord, who is sitting on a throne representing that God is king and God is judge. He has this big train, right? His robe is so big, it fills this, this whole heavenly temple that he's seeing this vision in. And it says that he is surrounded by, like, heavenly attendants. Two things that he calls seraphim. We don't actually know what seraphim look like. Uh, literally, the word means burning ones. So he's flanked by these two burning ones. Um, and this isn't an unusual image, in fact. In the ancient world, gods were often painted, drawn with attendants, Often they had two, actually, on either side. So we see that God's a God here. But these seraphim, here's some pictures that different artists have said. Maybe this is, what, this is my impression of what these look like. I'll show you three here. Again, just guesses, right? Just based on this passage, here's another one. Um, and the seraphim, it says, have six wings. And they're like burning. And with one set of wings, they're covering their eyes. With another, they're covering their feet. And with the other, they're flying next to God, ready to serve at a moment's command, ready to obey. We think that covering their eyes represents that holiness, right? They're in the presence of God. Their feet were considered an undignified part of the body, so perhaps there's imagery there. And so he's surrounded by these creatures, and what they're doing the whole time is they're singing. They're chanting. They're chanting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty over and over. And it says the whole earth is filled with God's glory. And that as they're saying this, the earth starts to shake. And the thresholds of this building that he's in start to tremble. And it fills with smoke. And it is this huge, majestic image all the while as they're shaking. And then Isaiah responds to this, right? And it says that when Isaiah sees this incredible thing, this image of God, these seraphim, the earth shaking, the smoke, everything, he actually says, woe to me. Right. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a nation of unclean lips. So when he has this, wasn't that the best? When he has this vision, his response is to say, oh, I don't belong here. Right? He realizes his own inadequacy. I, I am not good enough to be before God, and I'm from a nation that's not good enough to be before God. Like, woe to me, this isn't good. And I think we can get this image, right? We can get how he felt in this moment. And maybe you've had moments where you've stepped into a situation or you've been in, in a certain scenario where you're like, man, I don't belong here. And you felt your inadequacy. 
I found myself remembering three or four years ago, I was visiting my sister who lives in BC. She lives about an hour outside of Vancouver. And we decided to go visit mutual friends of ours that live right in downtown Vancouver. They live right on the harbor in an absolutely picturesque, beautiful part of Vancouver in a high-rise condo building. Now, we'd never been there before. We knew it was probably going to be pretty nice based on where it was. They're both doctors. They're well off. And we'd heard it was a very nice place. Um, but we got up early in the morning, my sister, my two kids, and me. We took the sky train in. We we're wearing shorts and t-shirts. It's a summer day, ball hats, running shoes. And so we get, you know, we get off the train an hour later, and then we're walking. We walk into this building, into the lobby. <laughs> I've never been in no one I know besides these people live in a building like this. It was stunning. There were literally doormen. And so we walk into this beautiful, beautiful building. And my daughter, who at the time was just six, just starts like looking in the mirror and she starts like fixing herself. Like she starts tying And she looks at me and she goes, Mom, fix yourself. <laughs> and, and what she felt, and it was so funny, and what she felt in that moment I think was like, we don't belong here, right? This is a really nice place. And we're dressed in like our dirty old clothes. We've just been on a train. She very quickly felt her inadequacy. And so I think what Isaiah felt in that moment was like a hundred times what Lucy felt when she walked into that building, right? A hundred times more, I don't belong here. This isn't the place for me. I am just inadequate. And he realizes that. And, and there's a reason he thinks that, right? Scripture frequently had stories of people who uh, were reminded of how great God's power was. Uh, there's a story, for example, in 1 Samuel. And in this story, it says that the Ark of the Covenant is being brought back to Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant, if you've seen Indiana Jones, if you're not familiar with it biblically, same thing. Um, but quite literally, it held the presence of God. It was holy. They were only supposed to carry it on really special sticks. No one was supposed to go near it. This was the presence of God among them. And it says that as they're carrying it back into the city, which is cause for great celebration, that it slips. And a man named Yuzah reaches out, and he grabs it, right, to hold it so it doesn't hit the ground. And you know what happens to Yuzah when he touches the ark? He dies. He just drops dead. That's the power of God, right? To be in his presence was beyond um, our mortal ability to do that. It sounds scary, but that is the power of God. And so what happens in this vision is that what Isaiah has is a vision of the holiness of God, a vision of how profoundly holy God really is. And then we also see what it's like to encounter that, and it is a big deal. So I want to talk about holiness for a minute, what it means that God is holy. Um, we use the word holy in lots of different ways. I use it all the time. Maybe you do too. You know, I, we say, holy smokes, holy cow, holy moly, holy, lots of other things, whatever you may fill in in your moments, right? Now, the word holy in Hebrew literally means, uh, is from the word kaddish, which means set apart or separate, um, and it's more than just like not having sin. The sense of this word holy is that it has a nature that nothing else has. That God has a nature that nothing else in creation has. Set apart, different. And, and none of those things I just mentioned, you know, smokes and moly and a cow, those things aren't holy, right? We know they're not holy. 
but God is holy. In fact, it says here God is holy, 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 three times. Now, again, much has been made about the significance of this being said three times. Um, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but um, I'm co I've come to understand that in Hebrew, this ancient Hebrew, which this part of the Bible was originally written in, that sometimes when they want to use the superlative, like the very or the above, they simply say something twice. So, for example, in 2 Kings, uh, we see a reference to gold, gold, but we translate that pure gold. It's the goldest of gold, right? It's just down twice. Or in Genesis 14.10, there's pits, pits, which we translate many pits, right? Because it means, oh, that place had a lot of pits, right? Pits, pits. Here we see holy, holy, holy three times. The only time in Scripture that happens. It's like the super-duper superlative, right? The holy, holy of holiests. It's a big deal. And I think it's something that we find hard to get our brain around. Uh, we can forget that to actually be in the presence of God is to be in the presence of something so beyond us, so beyond our comprehension. Um, it's just removed from how we often talk about that today. Uh, it wasn't removed from the ancient world. The ancient world understood that gods were something to be feared. They understood that gods were not like mortals. They understood that gods were scary. They, they would have seen gods as being out to get them, the people that you, the, not the people, the things that you tried to placate and make happy. Um, and some of you will probably be familiar with Roman or Greek gods. And again, this is a few centuries after this, but we get a sense of how gods were understood in other cultures. Just to give you a few examples, uh, Circe is the goddess of magic. If she got mad at you, she turned you into an animal. She was particularly fond of turning men into pigs. Feminists like her. That she really is an icon for them, right? That this was a thing. Um, when Athena, who was the goddess of wisdom, found uh, Poseidon, another god, and a beautiful mortal woman uh, canoodling in her temple, she turned that beautiful maiden, is the picture still up there? She turned that beautiful maiden, remembered as the most beautiful maiden in the world, into Medusa. You didn't mess with Athena. And then when, when um, Atlas led the Titans in war against Zeus and he lost, his punishment was to have to carry the whole world on his shoulders, right? You might know that story, the Atlas. That's what gods did. Those are the kind of things gods do. We make them mad. They make, make you carry a world. They turn you into animals, turn you into the ugliest creatures in the world. They're to be feared. They're scary. This vision would have made sense in a culture where we have so much understanding that gods are scary and that Isaiah is saying himself, this is too much for me. This is overwhelming. And that, that's what he's doing. But he's standing in the presence of the real God, the true God, the God that has carried them through so much. And he's seeing these surreal creatures singing and the earth shaking and the smoke rising. And quite logically, he's saying, yeah, I don't belong here. In fact, he's afraid. He says, woe to me because I'm going to die. But what is amazing about this story is that as Isaiah is sitting there, terrified that he's caught a glimpse of the Lord, and that means he can't even live, as he's overwhelmed, something else happens. We read that one of those seraphims, those burning, mysterious creatures, go to this altar that is there, and they take a coal, and they bring it to Isaiah's lips, and they lay it against his lips, and they say, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, 
and your sin is atoned for. So this holy, majestic God makes space for Isaiah to stand before him. God allows God's self to be known. I mean, this was different than anything that ever happened in cultures um, and other understandings of ancient gods. Gods didn't do this. Um, and this, too, is part of God's character. The God who has to clothe himself to even allow us to see him, the God who sits on a mighty throne that would make us say, this is so powerful that we'd find ourselves saying we aren't good enough, is also the God who says, let me make you good enough. Let me tell you how you can be clean. Let me make you clean so you can be in my presence. And to me, that's an incredible thing, that a holy God in this story makes space to know and to love and forgive first Isaiah, but all of us, an unholy people, uh, people just like each of us here. I find it interesting and fascinating sometimes how often culturally we'll hear people throw around the idea, but God is love, right? People will just say it all the time, right? If you're arguing about certain social issues, you know, we need to remember God is love. And I want to be clear, I think it's amazing that that has permeated our culture so much that that is the default understanding of God for many people. But sometimes I also think it's funny, because if you flew back 2,000 years somehow and you walked down a street in Rome yelling, God is love, they'd be like, <laughs> yeah, right. That would be so unforeseen to them, right? And so we have so moved towards this idea that God is love, which I never want us to let go of. It is so true that it can sometimes be easy to forget the power and the truth of the fact that God is also holy, what God could choose to do and doesn't do, which I think only makes his love that much more amazing, right? It makes the love that much more incredible. I love how one person framed it. They said, a holy God who could choose permanent separation from us chooses constant connection. I'll say that again. A holy God who could choose permanent separation from us, chooses constant connection. And we get a glimpse of it here. This holy God who reaches out to Isaiah, who gives us a regular human an incredible vision of who he is and says, you can hear me, you can see me, you can get this message from me. And then he says, and I want you to bring a message to my people, right? The connection's already starting. I want you to continue this connection between me and others. I'm going to use you to do that in this season. And, and the passage then turns, if you remember very famously, he says, who's going to go for me? Who will go? I'm looking for someone to send. And Isaiah says, I will, I will, hear my, send me, I want to go. Right? Something about the holiness of God just leads him to lump in, jump, jump in and, and do it and say, yes, me, 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 I want to do this. Um, and then God gives him a really hard call. He says, I want you to go and speak to the people. I want you to warn them what's going to happen, which was that their nation would fall. And uh, the thing is, though, they're not going to listen. Their hearts are going to be hard. Their ears aren't going to hear. They're not going to come around. That kind of stinks. <laughs> but there is a bigger message that he goes on to say. And then I, when, when Isaiah sees this, he says, how long, oh, Lord? Well, how long is it going to be like that? How long before they don't hear your truth? How long before they don't recognize it? And Isaiah, um, and God tells Isaiah, he says, until the city lies ruined and without inhabitants, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is forsaken. And this referred to what did happen 
when their nation ultimately fell and had to go into exile. But God didn't plan for the story to end there. He said, and though a tenth remains in the land, it will be again laid waste. But as a terebinth, which is a tree, an oak, leaves stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. So he says, yeah, the nation's going to fall. It's the only way forward. It's the only way for them to get the message. And they do. But he says, some are going to remain. And they do. A remnant remain. And it's like those trees that when the stump is still there, something's still growing. There's still the seed. And what we know happens is that out of that stump of Jesse, a root will rise. And the tree, of course, the seed is Jesus Christ who comes and then becomes like that coal for each of us. All of us, not just Isaiah. The coal that allows us to stand before God is the Jesus who says, now I touch you, I know you, and you can be in God's presence. You can be right with God. You can know the holy, majestic, earth-shaking God. And God's the one who reached out to you so that can happen in your life. It's really good news. And I think that the God who reached out to Isaiah and gave him that hard call still reaches out to us, even when we have hard calls. And sometimes you may, we may have seasons where we feel the calling is hard, or maybe we just don't want it. And we may be in seasons now where you're finding that you're facing things that are really hard, and you're like, God, I don't want to do this. And yet God says, I can send you, and I can use you. And I think the way that we keep moving forward is exactly how Isaiah kept moving forward. And that is he had seen a vision of the holy God and the God who came with that coal and touched his lips. And although we might, probably none of us will ever see something quite like that, we have the story and we have the truth and we have our ways that we have experienced God. And we can remember the holiness and the love, the God of the power and the God of the coal. What's interesting is that Isaiah, we see, never seems to shake how incredible this moment was. If you read through the book of Isaiah, you'll hear that he has a favorite title for God. He always calls God, not always, almost always, the Holy One of Israel. He says it 26 times. No one else uses that expression. <laughs> Very rarely. That's his name for him. When he talks about him from then on, he's like, and the Holy One of Israel. He never forgets what he saw, you know? He never forgets this image of this holy God and that that's the holy God who calls us still. And I think he never forgets that the God who could have chosen separation chooses constant connection. That's what he did with Isaiah. It's what he did with the people of Judah. And I believe it's what he does for every one of us. Let's pray. God, we know that you are holy. And we name that before you. And even to sit before you and pray and ask for things and seek you is so incredible. We can just talk to you. So God, help us remember your holiness and your power.